Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, the Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate changemakers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. All right. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Um, Bern, one thing I'm excited to chat about this week is this idea of tech people becoming more financially literate. Uh, you know, one perhaps explanation is that over the past few years, at least in, uh, in the startup space, we've had to understand macro, uh, way better in terms of why are our multiples worse? Why is there less capital coming into the ecosystem? Oh, now we have to understand, uh, interest rates and inflation. Why don't you, uh, unpack this, this broader trend and what's interesting to you about it? Yeah, sure. So I think it's, it's just been an interesting phenomenon I've observed anecdotally. And one of the pieces of anecdotal evidence is, um, people, People in the Bay Area did not casually use the term alpha 10 years ago. Like, I, I'm sure a lot of people knew what it was, but they like saying, you know, there's no alpha in doing whatever. Um, that, that is kind of new. And it does seem like a lot of the mental models from finance have percolated into tech. Um, I think some of this is just every so often there will be a money stuff post that makes the front page of Hacker News and then you'll realize money stuff is great and subscribe to it. Um, and so there's been some some cross-pollination from that. But yeah, I think the other piece is that in a zero interest rate environment, um, your capital is pretty abundant and it's just the the salient problems to solve are rarely the money problems. And um, a lot of that stuff took care of itself pretty nicely. It was just not not the thing to optimize for. Like if, if you could choose between a startup where the founder is really, really good at negotiating the right liquidity, like the right liquidation preference and structuring deals really well versus another founder who's really good at making a product people want to use. Like five years ago, it was really obvious you wanted the product person. But now, now some of that structuring stuff actually becomes more important. Like when capital is expensive, you want to start figuring out how to get capital cheaply. So I think, I think that's one piece of it. The other piece is that it is a side effect of the much bigger convergence in the other direction, which is finance people getting much more technologically sophisticated. And I think there are two pieces of that. There's one of how how financial research gets done increasingly, which is people buy large data sets, they analyze those data sets, the simple analyses. So if you're looking at something like credit card data or satellite photos of parking lots or weather data or whatever, like you can do some really simple stuff and run a linear regression and say, we, we think that sales are going to be up because the credit card panel shows that spending is up. And that's great until all of your competitors have the credit card panel and there are like 20 different companies selling different slices of that panel. And at that point, you have to do more sophisticated stuff. The the alpha is gone. And what you have to do is figure out what is driving this and can we figure out how to track what's driving this. So if, um, if like probably even five years ago, you this change was starting to happen where you go from we're going to track spending at Target by buying a panel of anonymized credit card data, extracting all the Target transactions. Well, now, now what we're going to do is also subscribe to some service that tells us how much money companies are spending on different ad channels. And we're going to scrape every Target website and look at their pricing. And we're going to figure out, okay, are sales up because more people are going to Target or are sales up because Target is cutting prices and doing a massive ad blitz. So they will beat expectations on sales and earnings will be destroyed and the stock will go down. Um, and all of that, like you can't do it in Excel. There was a time when you could. And in the very early days of alternative data, there would be large data sets that were still delivered by Excel. So you'd on some teams, there would be one person who had the fastest desktop on the team and they would get the, the giant Excel file of, um, country by country data for some, some website where, um, everything they do is very scrapable and you can just sum all the numbers and get to get to the reference number. But every time people start to realize like, 
waiting five minutes for Excel file to open and then being completely unable to bug it, to debug it or figure out what what is actually driving the model. Um, it's just not a good idea. We need a real programming language. We need something with documentation. We need something we can test. So more and more fundamental analysts have been switching to Python or um, at least have developed some ability to use data analysis tools that are not just Excel. And in a lot of cases, it's like you do the initial cut of your data, like you do a SQL query or something to summarize it in a form where you can play around with it in Excel. And Excel is still really good for um, testing things. It's really good for experimenting with ideas. Um, it's, of course, that means it's really good for data mining your way into a signal that doesn't really exist. Um, but there's there has been a shift where more of the thinking happens in, in um, more reliable programming languages. And then the other piece of the tech finance convergence, and, um, and we'll talk about this more um, as its own topic, is that more and more portfolios are, or more and more people are being measured, not just based on did they pick stocks that went up, but now it's more like if we adjust for all of the things that your portfolio is exposed to, like it's exposed to the broader market, you have an industry focus, you might have a country focus, you might tend to buy value stocks, you might tend to buy momentum stocks, like all of that stuff can now all those exposures can now be bought cheaply or hedged cheaply. So increasingly people are judged on just what is the idiosyncratic return of the things you did once we adjust for every risk factor we can measure. And actually doing that involves solving some, um, you know, like not computationally complex linear regressions, but like even like reasoning about a portfolio where you have all these different exposures and some of them offset one another and you have to think about the correlation between different assets and how those correlates you over time. Like it just requires more mathematical sophistication than it took to um, have a portfolio where you say, I'm going to own shares of the 50 best companies in the world. I'm going to short shares of the 100 worst companies in the world. And over time, I will make money like that. That was a good way to make money in less efficient markets. And it was a good way to get paid very well in less efficient, um, in a less efficient market for investment talent. But it's just not not the actual way to isolate the results of skill versus luck. And um, and actually isolating those turns out to be mathematically challenging. So I think the the math and analytical, well, the analytical waterline is probably pretty steady. The math waterline is going up. So people just tend to be, uh, people who do well in finance tend to be much mathier than they used to be. But what's also interesting about that is if you go back, um, it's not like finance ever selected against math. Um, so there's, there's always been, there's always been some benefit to being really good at mental math. And um, a lot of traders who are they're running some kind of semi-automated model, but they're still making discretionary decisions. They're they're often just amazing at mental math and really, really good at things like you throw out a couple numbers and a couple scenarios, or you ask them to bet on something and they think for a little while and they come with a very carefully articulated probability. And um, we'll quote you, you know, here's here's the, here are the odds on which I would take a bet against this happening. Here are the odds on which I would bet that it does happen. And, um, you know, they, they quote a spread based on their confidence. So that that kind of skill has always been selected for. And um, a lot of the early, in, like a lot of the investment greats of the mid 20th century were also math people. So Ben Graham majored in math, among other things at Columbia. And then um, Charlie Munger also majored in math in undergrad. Warren Buffett did not major in math, but he did seriously consider becoming an actuary before choosing investment management. So there have always been pretty mathy people. It's just um, there are fewer non-mathy people than there used to be. I want to talk about something you've been thinking about, which is this idea of factor-neutral hedge funds as the correct implementation of the knock that a hedge fund is a compensation scheme masquerading as an asset class. Why, why don't you uh, unpack this a bit? Yeah, so the, the first part, the compensation scheme masquerading as an asset class, like people have been saying that for a while, but it is true that what a hedge fund is, is a partnership that manages money and that charges a performance fee and generally, but not always, a fee as a percentage of assets. So if you're charging a performance fee, your natural incentive is do things that have a high probability of making money. But actually, if you think about that probability, like um, suppose you're a maximally cynical hedge fund manager and you are considering a trade that has a 90% chance of making a million dollars and a 1% chance or a 10% chance of losing $10 million over the course of a year. Um, from an expected value standpoint, you should not take that trade. Like you have lots of downside risk, minimal upside, but in any given year, you make a million dollars and or you, your fund makes a million dollars at 20% of that goes to you. And then 
if your fund goes under, it doesn't matter if your fund went under because you had one year where you didn't make much money or one year where you lost all of your clients' money forever. Either way, your fund is over, but either way, you have the money. So there has always been this struggle of how do we give people performance-based compensation, but also not give them an incentive to take crazy risks. And some of that happens at the level of investors looking at funds, and they will either try to find managers who just empirically behave more responsibly, and many of them do, especially like the famous names are the people who did not blow up. So they... They didn't take advantage of this free call option on their fee structure. They just did the right thing. But the other option is within a fund, you can build a risk model where you try to figure out, are people actually making money because they are making, because they have good ideas or are they making money because of luck? And as it turns out, the luck piece, you can also state luck as um, different different broad forces that affect every stock, but that someone who owns a single stock might want to take credit for. So the simplest is the market. Um, so if you are running a fund and you're benchmarked to the stock market, then your goal is not produce high returns. Your goal is produce returns that are better than the market's returns. And um, they have to also be better on a risk-adjusted, like your returns on a risk-adjusted basis have to be good enough that after fees, your clients are still better off investing with you than in the market. So that's step one. And then step two is, well, that's not the only kind of exposure that someone can get. So they could have exposure to a particular industry. And, um, you know, in the 90s, everyone who happened to be running a tech mutual fund felt like a genius because their stocks were growing up. But it turned out that all the tech stocks were growing up. So it wasn't super hard to make money. And similarly, if you were if you were running an energy fund in that period, you might feel like you've made some big mistakes in life. But if energy stocks are down 20% and your portfolio is down 10%, then you're actually doing a pretty good job. So the next step was, why don't we have people just run a portfolio where we balance out, they balance out all of those exposures and pretty much anything where you can say there's a driver for this company's performance that is also a driver for other companies' performances. Um, you net that out and you require portfolio managers to run a portfolio such that there's little exposure to that. So for example, um, momentum is a signal that works. So the stocks that have done well recently tend to do well. The stocks that have gone down recently tend to go down more. So running a factor neutral portfolio with respect to momentum would mean every time you oh, buy a stock that's done really well so far, they've you know, done really well in the last three months, you must short an equivalent amount of something else that has also done really well over the same time period so that you're not just betting on momentum, you're actually betting on the idiosyncratic variance of this company versus this other company. and. So what that ends up doing is it ends up building a structure where managers are evaluated on like portfolio managers, they're evaluating their actual skill in picking individual stocks. They have hedged all the luck out of the system. And if you're running a portfolio where there are all these dynamics are changing all the time, like the company that was a momentum stock three months ago, it's not a momentum stock today necessarily. So now your momentum exposure has changed. And so as a result of that, and as a result of the fact that if you're doing a lot of trades with a lot of leverage, you tend to be looking at pretty near-term catalysts. There's pretty high turnover, and high turnover is expensive. You're paying commissions, and you're paying for the market impact, which is typically, for hedge fund, the market impact is the bigger cost, not not just the commission or bid-ask spread. But um, if you're doing a lot of trades and turning over your portfolio really frequently, you're also generating a lot of data on whether or not you're good. So if you run a portfolio and you say, I'm going to do a classic concentrated growth investing strategy, I'm going to be the Phil Fisher of the 21st century and pick three stocks that I could hold for literally the next 50 years, um, it, it takes more than a career probably to figure out if you actually had skill. At some point, like someone can just look at your record and say, well, you've you earned 20% annualized from these companies and that's better than the market did. So you're probably pretty good, but you might also have been pretty lucky. And it's just hard to know either way. But if someone has a portfolio that generally has, say, 100 stocks and they're turning over that portfolio once a month, then at the end of a year, you have 1,200 decisions that they've made. And so you can get pretty confident in what the expected profit from a given trade is and what the standard deviation of those trades are. And so that's another way that this model basically enforces measuring people's performance really well. So... Um, to, to bring that back to the original point, there's really nothing wrong with a fee structure 
that happens to like the fee structure that people could use for an asset class, as long as the fees are being paid on very, very carefully measured outputs such that we actually know what good people have done, what good they haven't done. And that is like the question of how do you set people's compensation in a way that incentivizes the right things is just an ongoing question in capitalism. And it will always be, well, it's a, it's a question in any economic system. It's a salient one in capitalism because we have so many cases of people making lots of money, either despite the fact that the company they ran did not do very well, or despite the fact that the company they ran did really, really well at something that um, society would prefer not get done well. Like it is, you know, it's not an ideal allocation of resources. If there's, I don't know, uh, a charity doing bed nets in Africa and they're, their director gets poached by a casino because the casino is going to pay them five times as much to make a slightly more addictive slot machine. Um, that's probably not socially optimal, but it's really hard to design an overall system that just incentivizes the right stuff and punishes the wrong stuff. But in finance, we actually have, we have enough data and uh, we can measure the output closely enough. We can't actually get pretty close to that. So I wouldn't say the incentive system is perfect by any means. In fact, it's moved to this meta um, imperfection thing where now Large hedge funds, when they're hiring, they often make guarantees, and the guarantees are based on the expected profitability of the portfolio managers they hire. But those portfolio managers, um, you know, it, it's not, it's there's going to be an adverse selection effect where if you are getting a really good offer to leave firm A and move to firm B, the question is, does firm A not realize how good you are and only firm B does? Or does firm A realize you're not as good as you look and firm B doesn't? And so firm B is going to pay you this giant guarantee, but you're actually not going to make them very much money or not, not any money at all. So it's not perfect. It'll never be perfect. Um, information asymmetries will always exist and uncertainty will always exist, but it's surprising how close it's gotten to just the optimal way to actually measure investor skill. But this has all these trade offs. Like, um, if you're doing these, all these factor neutral, industry neutral, et cetera, investments, one thing you're not doing is asking any questions about the factors or the industries. So um, the a hedge fund portfolio manager who is involved in SaaS companies could tell you in 2021, could tell you like this company really should trade at 50 times sales and not 60 times sales, but they their job is not to say this whole sector is trading at three times its fair valuation. So everything needs to go down. Like they, they can't put on the trade of every SaaS company goes down because that's actually a factor bet on SaaS and that's not what they're supposed to do. But the fact that they're constantly trading all these companies does mean that there's a lot of liquidity for the people who do make the factor bets. So even though those bets are just not going to work out as well on a risk adjusted basis and like the risk adjusted returns, the risk adjusted gross returns that the big hedge funds get are just phenomenal um, at their scale. Like it, it really, aside from Renaissance Technologies, which is always the asterisk on these things, like it just hasn't been done at that scale and that consistency before. So um, you're not going to get returns like that, but you can put way more capital to work on these broad factor bets of just, I am going to buy US stocks because the market tends to go up over time. It has volatility and the volatility is what I'm being paid to deal with by these excess returns. Like that trade is easier to do now because all of these hedge funds are frantically looking for the utility stock that is 2% too expensive relative to its peers. And they can, they can put a little pair trade on and take advantage of that. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Real quick, what's the easiest choice you can make? Taking the window instead of the middle seat. Outsourcing business tasks that you absolutely hate. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Whether you're selling security systems or marketing memory modules, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. I've used it in the past at the companies I've founded, and when we launch merch here at Turpentine, Shopify will be our go-to. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And Shopify helps you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. With Shopify Magic, whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Generate instant FAQ answers. Pick the perfect email send time Plus, Shopify Magic is free for every Shopify seller. 
Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash moment of Zen. Go to shopify.com slash moment of Zen now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash moment of Zen. Say more about uh, venture capital in the, in the context of, uh, you know, is, is that also, or where is it also a compensation scene masquerading as a, as an asset class and in terms of how that relates to founders? Yeah, so I I think I mean VC it has a similar kind of fee structure to uh, to hedge funds, um, and there is like there is uh, some breadth and mandate, and it actually it goes back pretty far. Like venture capitalists were investing in non tech things from pretty much the dawn of venture capital. Um, I know some of, I forget which ones, but I think some of the big. Um, Big fast food chains of the 80s actually had venture backing. I want to say TCBY might have been venture funded or something like that. So there has been that that drift for a long time where not everyone is just doing tech. But it is that is a case where um, so if you are getting paid based on the assets you deploy and based on the profitability of those assets, then you are going to select into sectors where capital can be used pretty efficiently and what that has increasingly meant over, say, the last 20 years is just invest in software. But as other parts of the financial system continue to get more developed, I think there's going to be a case for investing in companies where they do, they are pretty asset heavy, but the company's technology is about getting more certainty of the returns on those assets. And if you have an asset that is expensive, but provides a predictable return, then you have an asset you can borrow against. So I think there's going to be a set of companies that are venture funded, but also heavily debt funded. And part of the venture model will be figuring out where the optimal amount of leverage should live, like should live on a company's balance sheet, should live on the investor's balance sheet, et cetera. And probably company balance sheet is is where it will end up. Then the other piece of compensation scheme masquerading as an asset class is venture funded companies, where you could say the compensation scheme here is you overwhelmingly your compensation comes in the form of equity, but you are pretty much required to spend a lot of the equity that you start with either on dilutive fundraising or dilutive hiring. And so you're still, but you still want to, if you have that kind of compensation scheme, there are still industries you will select into and things you will select into doing that you wouldn't otherwise select into. So you would want to find cases where you can grow fast without constantly issuing more equity, without constantly getting more dilution, unless you think that in the long run, your model is basically bootstrapped from the the uh, venture-funded founder model of when this company goes public, I'm still going to own 40% of it, so I will be a billionaire, to the the Fortune 500 CEO, CEO model, which is like, this company doesn't produce amazing returns, but it does produce consistent returns. Its returns are higher than its cost of capital, and the asset base is so big, the profitability is so big that I can pay myself very, very well, and people won't have a huge problem with it. So yeah, the more, the more you get diluted down because you've chosen a capital-intensive business, the more your actual outcome is, one, you do get paid well for running a big company, even if you don't run it all that well. And two, it's just way higher status to run a huge institution that you don't own very much of rather than to own almost all of a company that nobody's ever cared and nobody's ever heard of, even if in that latter outcome, it's actually more lucrative. It is funny. I, I have some friends who run companies that are worth you know, half a billion dollars and they're not paying themselves much because I think there's an expectation that founders don't take big salaries. And um, they know also that their companies aren't actually worth that. So um, they don't see kind of an exit in sight. And so they're saying, hey, um, you know, on paper, I'm rich. People think I'm rich. Uh, my company's worth half a billion dollars, but I'm broke and I don't even see a path. <laughs> and maybe if I raised less venture or didn't raise venture at all, or was just paid myself a much bigger salary, but you know, my VCs wouldn't like that. Um, you know, maybe things would be different. Um, and so for, for every company that works, that takes venture capital, um, and raises a bunch, gets diluted a bunch, then ends up selling, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot that don't, and that that's built into the the venture model, but it's not built into the founder diversification model. And so I, I think, uh, there's going to be a lot of companies and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an example of that, that are choosing a different, uh, a different funding model because they realize that their incentives don't exactly align with uh, with their with, with with venture capital incentives. Yeah, Paul Graham made a really astute point on Twitter a couple of months ago. Um, he might have made it earlier and I might have dismissed it, but he he said that the 
the thing about venture funding is that it allows you to choose your company's growth rate. And I think that's a really powerful model. So if you are growing a company by reinvesting its cash flows, then your constraint is if it doesn't produce enough cash flows, that limits how much you can grow. Um, there are other companies where they don't require a lot of reinvestment, but they do require time. So something like the diff, like I, I can't really, there's not a way to reinvest and just double my written output that I know of. If you think of one, let me know. But, um, it's, it's pretty constrained by how fast I can read, how fast I can type. Um, I suppose it's theoretically constrained by how well the best large language model can duplicate my writing. And we'll see how that changes things over time. But, for now, it's just not good enough. And so there, there isn't really a way to nudge productivity higher. So I've chosen a different, uh, different form of non-scalable model, but it's like, and then there is no free launch. So it's either you have limits on how much you can scale, or you don't have limits on how much you can scale because instead you have limits on what fraction of the upside will you get if you scale enough. And if you, if there is the possibility of people raising venture money to compete with you know, to compete in a given space and you just don't like the idea of raising venture money, then one thing you have to do is either say, um, I will really hope that nobody competent raises venture money to go after what I'm doing because they will be able to hire more people than I can and they will be able to do more marketing and all that stuff. So if the, if the market has any kind of winner take all or scale dynamics or whatever, I'm, I'm kind of toast unless I also raise money. But then you can also choose areas where money is just not what scales the business. And those areas just tend not to be venture fundable. So um, I don't think you get venture funding for a like quitting your job to become a realtor or um, becoming an entertainer or something like there's there's no there's no venture funding there because the capital requirements are very low and you can't really scale that. Or I guess I guess entertainers can scale, but really only at the very high end and then they scale amazingly. Uh, but we're not, we're not all going to be Taylor Swift. And my guess is, uh, I guess like within that cohort, there is actually a quasi venture ecosystem, which is that talent scouts try to find people early. They try to get them to sign pretty one-sided deals where, you know, it's like the, the like the, the classic structure of the deal would be, this is a lot of money to a 16 year old with a guitar. It's not a lot of money to a, an artist who regularly does platinum albums, but if you get them to sign it when they're the 16 year old with the guitar and they're like, wow, that's almost enough money to buy a used car. And then um, five years later, they're like, I actually left several hundred million dollars on the table by signing this deal. Um, you, the person on the other side of the deal, you, you're, you're not a very good person, but you're uh, pretty, pretty good at uh, negotiating contracts. So they, they have their own version of the magic ecosystem. It's tough to compete there. But yeah, there's like, there's a whole space of companies where there's not a good way to fund them. There probably shouldn't be a good way to fund them because they don't really need funding. And it does make them safe from this occasionally to really aggressive competition that's often fueled more by what's going on in the venture cycle than by what the fundamentals justify. But there, there are other constraints. For the other a lot of those jobs, like a lot of the jobs where the input is, um, is the time spent by people with very particular skills and traits. Like those businesses are really fun and really gratifying. So even if they're not venture scale returns, not everything in life has to occur on a power law distribution. And it's interesting, you know, venture capitalists get really big salaries. They're also, so even if they fail, they get rich, um, you know, reasonably rich um, or become millionaires, um, whereas founders don't. And VCs also have diversified portfolios. They have a much higher chance of getting a 2X or 3X, by which they'll then make even more millions of dollars. They have lesser of a chance of becoming billionaires than, than founders do. But uh, it's no surprise that many people prefer the risk-reward ratio of a, of a VC uh, return profile than a, than a founder, because there's just much higher chance of making, let's say, $10 million. And um, you also don't have to do the work. <laughs> it's also not 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 as hard, uh, you know. If if you're a great VC, obviously you work tremendously hard, but not in the same amount of stress as a as a founder. And so it's interesting if we can somehow, you know, we're talking about financial engineering here, somehow make the the founders' incentives a bit more uh, palatable um, in the, in the same way that we've done it for VCs. Some people try that by giving founders scout programs, or they they don't try it directly, but they get, in giving founders. The ability to invest invest in, in other founders, they're also giving founders different you know portfolios as well to diversify. 
Uh, some people are trying to make equity sharing or equity pooling a thing, but then that creates a little bit of adverse selection or VCs are worried that they want them to be all in, right? Yeah. So I think, I think there are two points there. One is just if there is some transaction where the people on one side always have an advantage and the people on the other side have a disadvantage, um, that just can't, can't persist forever. And so what happens like in a world where VC is a really easy way to make millions of dollars and also you can't fail and also you might have a chance to make hundreds of millions of dollars, like what happens is everyone stops founding companies. They all start founding venture firms. And then what you find is that the handful of really good companies, there are like the wait list is 20, 20 venture funds deep to get into that round. And so it's, it's actually not going to work. So there is, there is going to be a cycle where people move back and forth from a, from, from one of those industries to another and B um, from, I guess, like within those industries, they might move from trying to be very concentrated and trying to make early bets on a handful of really good companies to a sort of spray and pray approach. And maybe you scale in later on when you figure out who's actually a winner. But yeah, it's it's tough to maintain that equilibrium. And I do think there is there is something a little bit pathological about this this setup where, yeah, the VC, you know, if the fund has 15 portfolio companies, they they really only care about the winner and the rest are around like the better the winner like the better the fund performs the more likely it is there's one winner and everything else is around here and so that does mean that their their incentive is to tell every founder like constantly double down constantly make the big bets and that's that's pretty exhausting for the founders but yeah if you if there's enough overlap in skills and i would say that one of the skills in vc is um has to be just having having connections, having the ability to get warm introductions to the right people, and having the deal flow. Um, like you would get a lot of that working at a tech company. Like you you hire people. Some of these people will leave and found companies. Um, you partner with other companies. You deal with other companies, and so you end up with a broader network if you are working in the tech ecosystem generally. And that means that, that your your ability to transition from founder to VC improves over time as a founder. So, um, yeah, you would see, you would see some of that, um, some of that transition happen depending on where, where the edge was. And that somewhat mitigates the fact that the, the variance for founder outcomes is so high because it's not like you're stuck in the founder track forever. Like for one thing, you can, you know, if you, if you are able to raise venture funding, it's very likely that you can get a good job at a big tech company. Um, usually that interview has a higher pass rate than the, the, the Sequoia interview. Um, so you do, you do have the option to opt into a low risk thing. And I think it is, it is generally nice for society to offer just the maximally risk on option for different, different kinds of people in different ways. And sometimes the maximally risk on option is like, you are just totally indifferent to physical danger. And so you can get paid very well to do dirty, exhausting work in the oil industry in very unpleasant weather. Um, you, you make a lot of money. And as long as you don't worry too much about getting physically injured, that's great. Um, if you do worry about those things, then you, you do have to select into different jobs that, uh, don't, don't pay as well for the skill level. But, um, yeah, I think, I think having those options because people just have a wide variety of preferences and their preferences also shift over time. Like a lot of people are pretty into the, vet everything on the company lifestyle when they're in their 20s. And then if they have kids and a mortgage, um, betting everything on one company that has like 10% odds of success is suddenly not as appealing. So you either, that that might mean you don't start a company, that might mean you start a company, but only if you have several years of savings and know that you can always go back to something else. It might mean you start a bootstrap company rather than a venture funded company. Or I guess um, for some people, they're just wired in such a way that it's uh, it's okay to know that they might actually fail their company and have to sell the house and you know move somewhere smaller and cheaper with their family. Um, maybe for some people, that's a totally acceptable trade-off and something they actually want to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of uh, sort of being diversified, let, let's segue into um, something you you've explored recently about generalists uh, and, and a couple of mental models how to think about. Uh, generalist, why, why don't you uh, unpack that? Yeah, so I think an interesting pattern in people's careers is that they often start out like their first bout of great achievement is in something extremely specialized. And over time, they don't become famous for their specialty. In fact, sometimes it's surprising to find out what that specialty was. They become famous as just being generally good. And um, I actually wrote a piece on that path a long time ago. And it was called the, the gamer slash arbitrageur to generalist pipeline. And 
the observation there was that a surprising number of great investors started out in investing in the field of arbitrage. And arbitrage is some some combination of um, you're either trading the same asset on multiple exchanges or you're trading two assets that are nearly but not quite identical, or there is a company that's being acquired and you know the offer price and you know roughly when the deal will close and you buy the stock now and then you sell it when the deal closes and you get some some kind of return from that. And that business, um, they used to be the kind of finance business where it's selected very, very strongly for mental math ability. So if it's 1975 and you're on the arbitrage desk at Goldman Sachs, you see a headline on your, you see like the newswire headline of um, some company has offered $80 a share to acquire some business. And you see that the stock has gone up to 70 and you quickly calculate, okay, what's the return if I buy at 70 and sell at 80? And what's the compounded return over time? And do I think that this merger has like a 99% chance of going through or like a 50-50 chance of going through? You run all that math really, really quickly and trade the stock. And that's another case where you get a really, um, really robust sample size really quickly because ARBs will tend to be involved in lots of deals. The deals usually resolve within a year or so. You have pretty frequent portfolio turnover and can just quickly figure out, does someone have the raw calculation ability to be the first person to actually put in a bid at the appropriate price? And second, do they have the kind of general business knowledge of it's, you know, if arbitrage were just turn this, take the current price and the offer price and turn it into uh, compounded an annualized rate of interest, like it would be a very boring business. But actually you have to figure out things like, what are the odds that someone else comes in and makes an offer at $90 a share? And what are the odds that the deal gets renegotiated down to 75 or um, what are the odds that there's a, a huge recession and that causes the deal to fall apart? So the stock actually falls down to lower than it was before. And so that they becomes training for more generalized knowledge. And um, so a lot of um, a lot of great investors started as ARBs. Um, Warren Buffett did arbitrage very early in his career, and he actually... Um, ran the, when he worked for Benjamin Graham, he actually ran the numbers and found that arbitrage, I think, I think what he found was that arbitrage actually produced better returns than the classic value investing that Graham had done. Um, George Soros was doing the, the other kind of arbitrage where the same thing trades on multiple exchanges where, so he would be, he was in New York and he was trading, I think it was like mining companies that were listed in London and listed in South Africa. So sometimes you'd have a currency issue to correct for. And sometimes there's a difference in liquidity, but in general, if you can buy a hundred shares of some company at a pound in one place and sell them at one pound, three pence somewhere else at exactly the same time or within a reasonable period of time, you do tend to make money. And um, so he did. He made money at that and then transitioned to other things. And so I think what I, what I think is important about this pattern is that there are two ways that you can become a generalist. One is you just keep adding specialties. So you're really good at one thing and then you become really good at another thing and then really good at a third thing. And as long as those things have some kind of overlap, then you can do really well. And the other model is you start making these really general observations that can apply to just about everything. And then you are you're sort of always the go-to person for a useful first reaction to any emerging news story or any interesting opportunity. Um, you might think of these as like the the um, chairman of the board model of generalist and then the chief operating officer model of generalist, where in one model, you actually do want to be one of the best in the world at some set of tests. And then for another, you actually, um, you don't expect it the best at anything. You expect to be surprisingly high percentile at everything. And that includes the new things. And I think you see this in um, in a couple different instances. So um, I think Microsoft is a is a pretty interesting case where it started out as a company where they're their big advantage was being able to be very efficient with the hardware resources of the world's cheapest, lowest performing computers, the first PCs. And a lot of other programmers, like certainly performance is always a consideration at some level, but it was just less of a concern for, um, for mainframes. But it was a really big concern if you have a device with literally four kilobytes of RAM and you're trying to get it to run basic. Um, every every trick that you can think of that saves a little bit of memory makes a really big difference. But over time, Microsoft ended up specializing in other things. Like they got really good at understanding how how platforms work and how competitive advantage accrues to people who can set standards. And then 
they had to get really good at navigating the political system, figuring out, okay, what happens if you are too good at making your product a standard and too good at getting the best possible economics from that standard? And um, how do you how do you negotiate some understanding with the U.S. government where you could still sell software, but um, maybe not not so aggressively? So Microsoft did have to generalize, but there's still um, they've for a very long time. One, their big advantage has been distribution at the very biggest companies. And then another advantage has been that they do have lots of, lots of good engineers. Um, and that's, that has actually fluctuated. Like there, there was definitely a time when there was more talent leaving Microsoft than coming in. But at this point, it's, uh, that does not seem to be the case. Like the people I talk to at Microsoft or the people I talk to who have recently met Microsoft seem quite sharp. And it seems like a company that does a very good job of finding and retaining the kind of technical talent. I want to co- uh, segue to another topic that you've uh, you've discussed recently uh, and you put in your capital gains newsletter, which I highly recommend people check out, which is the, the opportunity cost of features. Uh, why don't you uh, unpack what you uh, explored there? Yeah. So I started that one. Um, I started that post by talking about one of my favorite little hobbies, which is if I go to a large chain restaurant, I contemplate the menu because the menus have to be like choosing the menu is this incredibly complicated multivariate process. Um, you know, the simple stuff is things like what is the ingredient cost and what is the labor cost for producing jalapeno poppers? But where it gets really complicated is, okay, what, what are the effects on overall purchasing behavior of showing the jalapeno poppers on the menu? What are the effects of charging a discount for one set of foods? Like maybe. Maybe we discount the saltiest foods because we make more money, we make a better margin on drinks and we'll sell more drinks if we have saltier food. Um, which foods do we have a picture of? Like, is it the most popular thing or is it the thing where you get the biggest lift in consumption from having a picture? And can you optimize your menu to maximize the odds of someone choosing a very high margin dessert afterwards? Because a lot of the desserts, um, the labor cost is really low. Like they're all prepared in a big batch and just kept somewhere cold. So those those can be pretty high margin um so yeah there's just there's a lot of a lot of complexity that goes into those menu selections and everything that exists on the menu of a large chain restaurant has to constantly earn its keep because they can dream up lots of different lots of different alternatives um you know lots of variants on a fried chicken sandwich or whatever lots of ways to incorporate aioli into whatever the slightly higher price point item on the menu is and you know all this there are, there are always these things changing. And so anything that stays on the menu, it has to be on there for a good reason. And then um, that gets even more true if you're looking at a uh, looking at a purely digital business where the marginal cost is close to zero. So the marginal cost of one more Instagram session or one Google search um, rounds down to zero. Like it's a big number, the aggregate, and they can spend a lot of money trying to minimize it. But in on a per session basis, it's really low. And that means that the the options presented to the user when they log in are hugely important. So one of the things I did in that piece was calculating just what is what is Facebook's revenue per pixel for their apps. And I think it's like $28,000 a year. So every pixel is very, very expensive. To have something that's actually visible to the human eye, you're risking tens of millions of revenue at a minimum. To have something big enough that someone can actually look at it and click on it, you are you know, notionally like notionally putting like a billion dollars or so of revenue at risk. And um, that means that for any product that, that that Facebook wants to introduce, that is going to be one of those bottom of the app navigation buttons, they have to have a case for why it's worth roughly a billion dollars, like why the, why the revenue, you know, why the contribution margin left is roughly a billion dollars. And, um, one thing that this model tells you is that it is actually impressive that companies will sometimes inject big new features that they know will not monetize as well as the status quo. So Facebook doing Reels, um, they used to, every earnings call, they used to say that Reels was still dilutive and that they were accepting this cost because they really wanted to wait in short video. And then on a recent conference call, they said, actually, um, Reels is no longer dilutive. Like it's gotten to the point where it's self-sustaining. The ads there are... Um, you know, the ad load there is going to be similar to where it is elsewhere on Facebook. And so we no longer break this out, but that, that took them a while. It cost them a lot of money in opportunity calls. They were willing to do it. And Google Bard is quite similar where they are taking screen real estate that used to have ads and often very lucrative ads. And instead they're turning it into 
inference, which has a much higher cost than just serving a search page, and then um, adding text and images that pushes down the monetizable content. But they're doing that because they they view that as a strategic imperative. And, and I suspect that targeting ads within generative AI content will eventually be much more lucrative than targeting ads in the traditional way, just because when you if you have a monetization waiting to the tokens you generate, then you can sort of slowly steer the conversation in the most lucrative possible way. It's sort of like sitting next to a salesperson on a long flight that you will find out after a while that this very extroverted person, once they have asked you all sorts of questions about yourself and shown that they are deeply interested in you, um, suddenly the conversation, you suddenly notice the conversation has turned towards problems you have that their product happens to solve. It's uh, It's amazing how that works. And doing that, Systematically and being able to figure out the uh, the user level tolerance for how much to steer the conversation in the most lucrative possible direction is probably um, probably means that the ad load actually gets more optimal. That the people who are just not as receptive to commercial messages get fewer of them. People who do buy a lot of stuff online get more, and that a lot of us end up not even noticing that more and more of our generative AI interactions steer us towards purchases. Uh, speaking of uh, a purchase, I want to segue to a different topic that you you wrote about, which is CBG companies negotiating with grocery stores and uh, how that, in some ways, that's a, analogous uh, uh, to tech. Yeah. So one of the weird things about the the structure of the tech ecosystem is that it is a bunch of like the supply chain is just full of monopolies. You've got ASML selling things only ASML can make. It's selling them to TSM. And TSM makes things only TSM can make, designed by things only NVIDIA can design. And, you know, they end up in um, in a data center controlled by, used by OpenAI, and they're powering an LLM that only OpenAI can do. So, like, you have all these monopolies, and then you have a huge consumer surplus. So, in the end, we all get these really cheap, really great services that are continuously improving, which is kind of wild. But there are other industries where it's one monopoly negotiating with another. And retail is a in- really interesting category of quasi-monopoly, because... At one level, retail is, especially grocery retail, which is the the relevant one in this case, like insanely competitive business. And, you know, if you if you overprice your milk by 10 cents, suddenly it throws all the economics of your store out of whack. But at another level, once someone is in the grocery store, that grocer does have something closer to a monopoly where they are not going to go 20 minutes out of their way to save a small amount on some product. So the goal with the grocery business is always get people in based on what's visibly cheap get them to walk past things that are very high margin, get them to buy those things. And that walking past the high margin thing is where this conflict comes in because um, PepsiCo is, um, so the, the specific instance here was um, Carrefour, which is a large French and European grocery store. Um, they were negotiating with Pepsi overpricing and they pulled all Pepsi products from their shelves. At least that was the original headline. The headline a couple of days later was actually Pepsi says, no, um, we decided to stop selling to them. They didn't, back out on us we backed out on them but it is true that they couldn't come to an agreement on who on on pricing and really pricing in that case is who gets the reward for who gets the monopolistic margins from their monopoly so pepsi can significantly increase the value of a bottle of um carbonated corn syrup with some flavoring agents and some coloring agents um they put the pepsi logo on it instead of you know the you know, Mr. Pib logo um, or whatever, it is It is a much more valuable product. And then Carrefour can also increase the the turnover of those. I can make sure that they move off the shelf really fast by getting lots of foot traffic into the store. So both sides can incredibly say that they are the big value creator in this transaction. And then they have to negotiate over, okay, who's, who really creates most of the value here? And the way that you show that your side creates more value is you just stop doing business with the other side. And I think one piece of this negotiation is, um, I'm sure they're each material, like this This brochure is a material channel for Pepsi. Pepsi is a material source of revenue for Carrefour. And, you know, especially if you're a low margin grocery business, um, you you care a lot about losing a specific high margin item that is part of the general shopping basket. So they're, they're both materially contributors to each other, but um, if they can be very public about their willingness to walk away from a deal that doesn't fit their terms, it really helps the negotiating standpoint with all of the smaller people with whom they have the same kinds of dealings. So when Pepsi goes to a smaller grocer, they can say, 
we were willing to lose X percent of our annual sales not to get pushed around by this huge European grocer. So we are definitely willing to lose the sales from this five-store chain in the Midwest. And similarly, the grocer can say, hey, we we went head-to-head with the biggest, one of the biggest CPG companies in the world, and we told them, you can't push us around. So if you are uh, a tiny French company that sells chocolates to just stores in one regional um, one regional set of car for locations, then of course, when they tell you that uh, they're, they're lowering their prices, you kind of have to say yes. So I thought that kind of public negotiation was interesting. And I think it's, it is representative of how, how a lot of tech companies work, where you have multiple companies that are an indispensable component of the final product. And in theory, they could just walk. And in fact, investors will sometimes ask TSM, like, why does NVIDIA make so much more money from the GPUs that can only be fabricated by you guys? Like, why aren't you just telling them, actually, this time we get all the gross margin from the the latest and greatest GPU? You don't. And um, part of the answer is that they are building a long-term relationship and they are, they are, they make more money on stuff that is not quite so cutting edge, but the reason they're able to get those deals is that they can they can serve their clients' needs on the more cutting edge stuff. But um, it's also the case that tech just creates a very large consumer surplus relative to its cost. Um, it just turns out that information, the more of the economy that's information-based, the more of the economy is really, really high margin and is, um, is able to create a lot of value by matching the right person to the right information. So in some ways, it's just easier because there, the negotiation is easier because there is so much value to go around that everyone can walk away fairly happy. But as the industry matures and as as things kind of settle and as as costs go up because more products integrate AI or more products have video or whatever, these all these things that increase the cost of serving a single session, you may actually see the competition get a little bit more uh, bare knuckle and a little bit more like grocery stores negotiating with Pepsi. Yeah. Um, we're, uh, we're hitting just, uh, just the hour. So maybe that's, uh, that's a good place to, 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 to wrap burn. This has, uh, been a, been, been a pleasure as always. And, uh, until next week. All right. Talk to you next week. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe, give us five stars, and check out Burns' excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 